stories from the Bible. They're our stories because we're God's people. But God's people have some other stories too. And this is one of them. So listen. 500 years ago, winter came to Wittenberg, a town in Germany. The days got cold and short and the wind howled in the trees. And in one house, with its doors and its windows shuttered against the winter cold, one man sat hunched over his writing desk. And in the flickering candlelight, Martin Luther's pen flew across the page. He was writing furiously because there wasn't much time. You see, some of the leaders of the church in Martin's day were teaching people that you could buy forgiveness and salvation. They taught people that if you gave money to the church, God would forgive you and you would go to heaven. And in those days, most people didn't have Bibles of their own. So they believed whatever the church leaders taught them because they couldn't read the words of truth for themselves. But Martin, had studied the Bible for himself, and he knew what those church leaders were teaching wasn't true. He had read the words in the Bible that said, you are saved by faith. He knew the only way to get salvation was faith in Jesus Christ. And he knew it so down deep in his heart, he was so convinced of it that he couldn't keep it to himself. So he picked up his pen and he began to write one sentence and then another and another and he wrote all that cold afternoon and into the, into the evening. And when he was finished, he put down his pen and on his paper were 95 statements that explained the only way you could get salvation was believing in Jesus Christ. He looked outside and it was late. The sun had gone down and night had come, but he knew there was still time. There was still time if he hurried to get to the church. You see, it was All Hallows' Eve, the night before All Hallows' Day. On that day, everybody in town would crowd into the church to remember the lives of the believers who had died. And if Martin could get to the church and post his paper on the door, then the next morning when everybody came to worship, they would see it and read it. So even though it was very late, he lit a torch and he carried it out into the night. And in his other hand, he carried a hammer and nails. And in the pocket of his coat was the paper. And in the dark of night, he walked through the streets of Wittenberg to the castle church. And when he got there, he stuck his torch into the ground. And he unrolled the paper and he pressed it to the door. And with the hammer, He struck a nail right through the paper into the door and he smoothed out the paper and he struck another nail at the bottom of the paper and it was done. The paper was hanging on the door. On October 31st, 
in the year 1517, Martin Luther nailed his proclamation to the church door telling everybody that there was only one way to get salvation, believing by faith in Jesus Christ. And what he did that day changed and started a change in the church that couldn't be stopped because the next day, everybody came to the church and they saw what Martin Luther had written and bit by bit, little by little, word spread through the town of Wittenberg, through all of Germany, into Switzerland, all through Europe to Scotland, until all through the world, the whole church was reformed, renewed by the saving work of Jesus Christ. And it all started on All Hallows' Eve, October 31st. In the church, we call it Reformation Day. This is our story. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Thanks, Beth. Good to see you, kids. Bye. So that's the story of like the best and most effective social media post that's ever been made. So that's, that's good. All right, um, let's, let's pray. God, as always, we are grateful that you gather us together. And whether in the past couple of years, whether that means here in this place right now or online or throughout the week, that you are gathering your people together in the ways that we are able. We pray that you continue to call us to do that because it matters. It matters that we are together one way or another in this church, out in the world, and even online. So continue to draw us together so that we can come, read your word together. And we can bring our prayers to you that we can sing these songs about you, that we can glorify your name, remind ourselves of how holy you are, our need for you, and so that we can practice this story so that we're ready to go out into the world and tell it. So as always, pray that you would open our minds, our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that we could receive the word that you have for us today, that it would transform us from within so that our hands and our feet would do the word that you have for us today. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. All right, so last week, uh, I gave you an, an analogy for the world that we live in, um, this analogy of a rushing river. And we talked about how sometimes the river, it's flowing just right, it's nice and relaxing and fun, and then like out of nowhere, sometimes it turns and there's chaos and rapids, and there's like real danger from the rocks, and there's fear and panic. And we talked about no matter how the river's flowing, what we know is that it's all flowing in one direction, and that direction is actually taking us farther and farther away from God. So that's the river, the world that we live in. And as we live in that world, we're faced with a choice every day. Do we go along with it? Do we just lay back and let the river take us, even though it's taking us farther and farther away from God? Do we accommodate and just go along with the ways of the world? Do we allow the ways of the world to dictate to us what is right and wrong or how we should or shouldn't live? Or do we press against it? Do we turn around, stop floating, and start swimming the other way, swim against the stream? So we talked about the fact that that, that is the choice facing those who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
For people who are walking that knife's edge of faithfulness in the midst of a lost and broken world, that's the choice. But the truth is the only choice is to swim against the stream, to press against it. But we acknowledged last week that it is exhausting. So we were reminded that there's good news, that there is a solid rock standing firm in the midst of that river. It's been raised up by God to provide salvation from all those waters around us. So I'm not really good at analogies. That was attempt number one last week. I'm going to try another one this week. <laughs> and then I'm going to give you a break because analogies are not my thing. Um, but I would say, if you missed last week, uh, I really do encourage you, go to firstpresskingwood.org or go to our podcast and check it out because I think the analogy and the story that we read from Daniel chapter seven, I do think it's gonna bring you some hope as you take on that hard work of swimming upstream. Uh, so the analogy for this week, um, and this one, I told Sabrina last week, to me it felt like it was kind of a hug, like I'm just gonna give you hope. Uh, maybe not so much this week. <laughs> this one's gonna challenge us a little bit. Um, we're back in the water, uh, but this time it's the ocean. Uh, just somewhere along the Gulf, you pick, muddy or clear. I don't care what the water's like. But you found your beach, you pick your place in the sand. You've laid out your blanket, you've got your cooler filled with ice cold water sitting next to you. Your umbrella's up, it's placed in the sand, providing shade from the sun. You've made your home base for the day. You've set up your markers in the sand. You know where you belong. So then you go step out into the water just to cool off, to swim, to play. And as you're doing that, as far as you know, uh, you're standing still. I mean, maybe you're even like digging your feet down into the sand, just enjoying the cool sand, the cool water. But time passes and you look back up to see home base at the beach and you notice that your blanket and your umbrella are, well, somebody must have moved them. <laughs> well, actually, as I look around, everything seems to have moved because nothing is where it was when I got in the water. Why is that? <laughs> you don't even realize it, but when you're in the water, that current has been slowly, inch by inch, pushing you just a little farther down the beach. And it's a really weird feeling, to be honest, to believe that you're firmly planted in one spot on the planet and only to find that you and even the sand beneath your feet, you've been moving with the current the whole time. It's taken you farther and farther away from the place where you belong. This too is life. This is life in a lost and broken world. The water can be cool and refreshing. It's fun to laugh and to play and to splash, but it is also so easy to get distracted, to stop paying attention, but if we stop paying attention, if we get distracted, if we don't keep our eyes firmly fixed on that marker in the sand that tells us where we belong, we can look up and realize that we have drifted so far away. All right, so I wanna see how this analogy plays out in scripture. If you wanna start taking out your Bibles, we're gonna read a passage from 2 Samuel 12 uh, really quick. So if you go like to the middle, you're probably in either Psalms or Isaiah. If you want to go to Psalm 51 and just stick something in there for a minute, we're going to come back to that later. But go to your left, and eventually you'll find 2 Samuel 12. And if you get to like Leviticus, you went too far, just go back the other way. You've got like five minutes to find it. I want to set up the story before we read it. So, so I want to focus today, I want to look at the story, and I want to focus on how without even realizing it, this current just takes us farther and farther from where we belong. Because I think that's exactly what happens to King David in this story in 2 Samuel. So King David, this little shepherd boy, right, who becomes a giant slayer, 
He's described as being a man after God's own heart. He authors many of the Psalms. This is the king who will set the stage and in some ways even be a model for the coming Messiah. So it's really important to note from the start, the story we're going to read, this is not about some pagan king. This is God's chosen man. And as we get ready to read what we're going to read in scripture, I'm going to set up the story, but I need to tell you the story is a little racy. I'm going to try to keep it PG for the kids, but it is a really important story for a couple of reasons because it really makes clear the power of sin in our lives. It shows us the availability of God's amazing grace as a response to our sin. And it reminds us of the certainty of his forgiveness and the restoration that we receive when we respond to that grace by faith. So again, we're gonna turn to the text in a minute. Let me just set up the story that comes before it. And some of you are familiar with it. So one day David is sitting on the rooftop in his palace and he looks over at one of the other rooftops and he sees this woman, the beautiful woman, and she's bathing. Uh, She happens to be the wife of a man named Uriah. And Uriah was one of David's closest advisors. He's called one of David's mighty men. He even helps to save David's life when the previous king is chasing David down and trying to kill him. So David's watching his wife bathe on the rooftop and he gives in to his desires. He takes her, he sleeps with her, she becomes pregnant. That's really bad. (laughs) And it gets worse. Because his first instinct, like so many of us, is to cover it up. So Uriah at the time was one of David's generals, and he was actually out in the battlefield fighting for the king and fighting for Israel. David sends for Uriah and wants him to come back to Jerusalem, hoping that he'll come back, spend a little quality time with his wife, and they can just say that she's pregnant and the baby is Uriah's. Everything is magically legit. The problem for David is that Uriah is a dedicated warrior. He's dedicated to his king and he refuses to abandon his post. He won't come back. So David devises a plan. This time it's a battle plan. And this battle plan makes certain that Uriah, along with many others, are going to be killed in battle. And the plan works. David takes Bathsheba as his wife and he goes on about the business of being the king of Israel. So David is effectively responsible for the murder of his friend, but that's just the final in what is a long line of sins. It starts with his lust. He's coveting another man's wife. He chooses to commit adultery. He lies to cover it up and then he schemes to murder Uriah and causes the death of other officers and soldiers along the way. I mean, he breaks like half the 10 commandments just in this one story. And all of this from a man who wrote Psalm 25, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. And I think he meant that. I think when he wrote it, he meant that. But man, talk about taking your eye off that marker in the sand. So look, even before we read what comes next, this is a really important lesson. The the potential For the worst possible actions, they lie in the heart of every single one of us. This is not the story about a pagan king. This is a story about God's chosen man. This is not a story about a lost world doing lost things. This is about the potential within God's people to let the current of sin sweep us away and carry us really far from where we really belong. The best people who have ever lived 
are capable of the worst things humans can ever do. I hear people say all the time, why do bad things happen to good people? Y'all, we know a gift of the Reformation is the reminder there simply are no good people. Every single one of us will be carried down by that current, carried down the shore, even out to sea, if we don't keep our eye focused on that marker planted in the sand. I don't know how many of you are familiar, but in the past number of years, I mean, even just throughout history, you have church leaders like popular celebrities that people follow and study and read and really care a lot about what they have to say. They have spoken and pastored them, have huge failures, have fallen from the ministry completely and people are always surprised. Why? (laughs) Why? The potential lies in the heart of every human to do the worst thing that a human could ever do. This is the story that plays out all throughout scripture, not just in the life of David. I mean, in the Bible, all of our good guys, they're bad guys. (laughs) They all do stupid things. And what kind of book describes the heroes of its faith by revealing all their flaws? I'm convinced only a book that's actually telling the truth. Okay, so what happens next? We're gonna get to the text. What happens after David breaks half the laws that God wrote on his heart? God sends a prophet named Nathan to tell him a really hard truth. So here we go in 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'm gonna start in verse one. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, what? You are the man. I mean, Bill, you kind of said it like, you're the man. (laughs) The tone was a little different. (laughs) You are the man. And then Nathan says to David, he says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Anytime you see that phrase in scripture, that's a prophet telling you, I am no longer speaking. I'm telling you directly what the Lord has said. And he goes on to say, in the Lord's words, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And then in verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. There's a ton of lessons in this story, but there's a really important lesson about the way that God brought his child back to shore. Do you notice what, David did, what Nathan did? Did he come up to the king, poke a finger in his chest, and lead with condemnation? No. 
He led with grace. He told David a story. He invited him first to reflect on God's justice. You may know this, but a king at that time also served as the judge. They played both roles. So he invites David to sit in the judge's seat to determine what should happen to somebody like the man in the story. Then what does he do next? He invites him to take a seat in the defendant's chair. He invites David to reflect on God's justice, on God's truth, and then more directly, he invites him to apply that truth to his own life. That is brilliant. There's a lesson in that. It was that gracious and prophetic invitation that becomes a real turning point in David's life. We are reading about the reformation that happens in the heart of a king. What would most kings do to a prophet who has such news for them? But this king's heart is reformed. I told you earlier that David wrote a bunch of the Psalms. There's one in particular that's tied directly to this story. In your Bibles, the heading will even tell you that. And that's Psalm 51. So listen to these words. This is the heart of a broken man who realized just how far the current of sin has taken him. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. And you taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let these bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. It's a pretty good confession. This one story, it it teaches us the deep truth about the potential for the sin that lies within each and every one of us. It reveals the amazing grace of God that he would redeem, restore, and then continue to use broken people. And then it shows us how to turn to God when we realize that the current of sin has taken us so far away from him. That psalm is a gift when you know that you have strayed but you don't know what to say, that's where you go. The story also teaches us another really important lesson. It teaches us the importance of having and being a Nathan. A voice that speaks into our lives telling me, not Chad, you're the man, but Chad, you're the man. It's you. And then being a voice for others, graciously helping them see just how far the current has taken them. Not to shame them, but to save their lives. To keep them from being carried out to sea. Today, as Beth said, is Reformation Sunday. 500 years ago, this group of Nathans, they rise up from within the church. 
but they pointed their finger at themselves, at the church. You know the reformers weren't part of some other church that came to yell at a church they disagreed with, right? They came from within the church itself. And they said, we're wrong. We are that man. We have completely lost our way and we are no longer the church Christ called us to be. In our theology, our practice as a church today, it finds its roots in that movement. It is grounded in that movement and I'm grateful for that. But I want you to know for me personally, the reason I call myself reformed, it's not because I agree with everything that Calvin and Luther and the others had to say. It's their witness. It's their willingness to point the finger at themselves. To point the finger at the church, to be honest about the church when it has let itself be carried down the shore by the current of sin. We think of the reformed 500 years ago, past tense, but the battle cry of the reformation, this is the reason I'm reformed, this battle cry is ecclesia reformata semper reformanda. For those of you who may not be fluent in Latin, the church reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. Being reformed is not past tense. The word itself, reformed, is actually an abbreviation, the full description of who we are. We are Christians who have been and who are being reformed by the word of God. It is not something that happened. It is something that must always happen if the church is going to be the church God calls us to be. So we celebrate Reformation Sunday. It's cool to get to celebrate it on the actual day. And we do that as a way of reminding every generation and ourselves of the importance of this moment in history for the church. Every generation needs to learn what it means to be Christians who have been reformed and every generation needs to be always reforming. And to do that, we've been given a gift. The thing that reforms us the thing that helps to train us to be the church he calls us to be, the thing that protects us from being carried away by the current, the thing that grounds us and helps us to keep our eyes fixed on that marker in the sand. And it's reading the word of God by the power of his Holy Spirit. At First Pres, we have the set of values um, that guide the decisions we make about what ministries we lead, what we participate in. I mean, we could do anything, right? There's a million great ministries and great ideas in the world. Uh, all the churches around us are doing great things. We could just copy them and do what they're doing. But we believe we're called to do specific things. That we are called to be disciple-making disciples. And we believe that that is a person who is biblically literate, who is spiritually formed, who's mission-focused, and who is gospel fluent. This past weekend, Friday and Saturday, um, the elders, the session of this church, uh, we met for a retreat. It wasn't really a retreat. We didn't rest, we worked. <laughs> and we were working to begin to develop a strategy so that we can really put these values into action every day throughout the life of our church to really build a culture of disciple making here at First Pres, not to just say it, but to truly do it. And do you know why? We're putting all the work into really doing this because it is the only thing Jesus told his church to do. That's it. 
He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then he reminds us, he's with us when we do that, even to the end of the age. It's the only thing he told us to do. So while we met, uh, there was one truth that we spent time reflecting on because it kept coming up over and over, that we can't make disciples if we're not disciples ourselves. That only a disciple can make disciples. And that we aren't disciples of Jesus if we are not firmly rooted in and guided by his word. If we are truly led by his spirit, if we are engaged in his mission, and when we are willing and able to tell others the good news that they are loved and invite them into a loving relationship with their creator and redeemer. So over the weekend, your session, we reaffirmed all these values, this truth about what it means to really follow Jesus. And I'll tell you over time, you're gonna begin to see the fruit of all the work that happened this weekend. But for right now, for today, I just want you to know this is why we spend so much time every Sunday digging into the text. I know I preach long, (laughs) I know. But there's a reason. Because we are asking God to guide us to be the church that he calls us to be because we wanna be more than just a country club with great music and programs. Right? We are reformers. We truly want to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus because that's what he told us to do. This is why we have opportunities, Sabrina reminded me after the first service, every single day of the week. There are opportunities every day of the week to get together in smaller groups, whether it's here or out in the world or online. Opportunities every day so that in smaller groups we can dig even deeper so that we can continue to learn how to read and understand both what the Bible says and what it means, and then apply it to our everyday lives. We do all of this. We are committed to all of this because the moment that there is any distance between the church and the word of God, the church becomes nothing more than a country club with great music and programs. The minute there is any distance between the church, the people, and the word of God, Y'all, I think the reformers, if they were alive today, would be furious that it is so common in the church for one trained person to tell you what this means. I think they would be furious at us. My job is not to tell you what this means. That's not Sabrina's job. We were trained so that we can guide you so we can walk alongside you, and together we can understand what this means, not only for our lives, but as a church, because we are nothing but a noisy crowd otherwise. And we're called to be a movement of the kingdom of God. That's what he called us to be. So I I want you to do two things. Um, I normally don't tell you what to do, but today I'm gonna tell you what to do, (laughs) all right? Um, Okay, so first, uh, if you don't already have a Bible, like, I mean, a Bible that, that you love and will hang on to, go get a Bible. Like today, the game's not till seven, you have time. Go get a Bible. And look, the good ones are pricey. That is sad. If that's an issue, come by my office. I've got stacks on stacks, and I'm happy to share one with you. 
So go get a Bible and find a good one. Find one you'll hang on to. Find one you might even make notes in and hand down to your kids. And people ask me all the time, no translation is better than any other. Just if you stick with one of the major ones, there's the NIV, ESV, NRSV, the NLT is a great readable translation. You're gonna be in really good shape. If you already have a Bible that you love, then go get two more. Get one that's a different translation from the one you currently have. So when people ask me my favorite English translation, I have two. For the Old Testament, it's actually the old RSV, so the NRSV. And for the New Testament, it's called the NET. It's a different one. So I have two Bibles for when I read either the old or new in English. Get another one. Use the translations to compare and see what questions that raises. But then I want you to get another Bible, a third Bible. And that's a Bible for you to give away. You hold on to it until it's time for you to give it away. Some of you prefer reading the Bible on apps and on your tablets, and that's awesome. Like, because right in the palm of your hand, you have like all the translations. So that's great. Share that app with others. Tell them about it. So that's the first thing that I want you to do. Okay, fair? Is it fair for me to ask you to do that? I feel like that's okay. Uh, the second thing, what's the second thing I'm gonna tell you to do? This is not rhetorical, say it out loud. Read it. <laughs> <laughs> But read it in community. Read it together. The reason I want you to have a Bible to give away or an app that you can share with others is because it's easy to start a personal reading plan on your own. You can go home today and just get started. But it is also really easy to slip and lose momentum and just get back, right? Find out that the current has taken you. It's easy to do that if you're not reading it with others. The Bible itself was meant to be read out loud and read in community. So read it together. And maybe that means joining a class here on Sundays. I've got a Wednesday class that's always open, that's online. We have, like I said, studies that we offer on our website every day of the week. But you can also just grab two or three other people. Meet at Starbucks, meet in your home, meet at work, meet online. Read and discuss. There's an app called the YouVersion Bible. It's a great app. It's a great way to read and discuss, not just with people living in Kingwood, but people around the world. And you get to do that in community. And if you want any insight on how to make that work, go see Bill Ford. And if you want to read with somebody, go see Bill Ford. The dude's reading like five different plans at the same time with all these different people all around the world. Just jump in. He'd be happy to have you. Any of us would be happy to do this together. But just find a couple people and read the Bible together. Do it in community. I don't care how you do it. And I'm being really serious. I'm not suggesting these two things. <laughs> I'm telling you to do it. Because we are absolutely committed to building a culture of discipleship and disciple making here at First Pres. And we are only going to succeed if we do it together, if we meet together in this church, out in life, and online. If we meet and ground ourselves in the word of God, if we commit ourselves to prayer, to a life guided by the Holy Spirit, if we are active together in the mission of God here on earth, and if we are ready and willing, if we have practiced telling others the story of why we have found hope in Jesus. If we do those things, we will be the church that Christ has called us to be, the gift that he gave to the world. Do you understand that when Christ left the church, 
He left the world a gift. We are meant to be a gift, pointing people back to the one who loves them more than they could possibly imagine. And it all starts right here. Amen? Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.